Faye, I don't know about you, but pap smear changes happen so frequently, I feel like, and I can't keep up anymore now that my primary practice is really just in obstetrics. Yeah, and it's really difficult, I think, even for our residents to remember everything, especially with Creogs looming overhead in, towards the end of January. So what methods do you have of making sure that they and us keep up to date? Well, if I need a quick reference, one place that I can know I can turn to is the OBG project because I can hold this in my special library on my bookshelf and say, aha, this is the most recent thing that I know that they have read and up to date in a nice bullet pointed summary. And then they've even got an alert on their homepage right now to get you signed up to be able to know as soon as the newest recommendations coming from the USPSTF on cervical cancer screening get dropped. Um, that's pretty, pretty neat that you can be right on the front lines of brand new changes in patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And even more for residents, uh, they have the resident core curriculum. So you can go ahead and sign up for that um, and basically look at comprehensive OBGYN resources for your education. And of course, now the OBG project also has an app so you can access this even more quickly and easily from your phone. Get signed up for all of the great things that come from the OBG project, including OBG First, absolutely free for residents all four years on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. guys so welcome back we are going to be doing another episode on our surgical steps and today we're going to be talking about the postpartum sterilization procedures so nick what are our learning objectives for today yeah so we'll start off by briefly describing when a postpartum sterilization procedure is done we'll discuss surgical steps of three different types of postpartum sterilization procedures namely the salpingectomy and then the parkland and pomeroy techniques for partial salpingectomy um, and then finally we'll understand what follow-up entails for a postpartum sterilization surgery all right Faye. so it may be kind of an obvious question but let's just jump into it what exactly is a postpartum tubal yeah, so uh, this is a procedure that's going to be done after the birth of a baby to permanently prevent future pregnancy. Um, and the reason for performing it postpartum are varied. So usually it's done within that first one to two days after a vaginal delivery, and it's highly effective with the risk of pregnancy being less than 1%, though if you want to look at the actual rates depending on the type of surgery, go ahead and check out the Crest Study episode that we did, and we'll link that in our website notes. Um, the other reasons to do it in the postpartum period is because of increased access. Patients are already in that healthcare setting after the delivery of their baby, and they don't have to come back to the hospital or the healthcare setting for a different procedure. And then lastly, you know, it's mostly minimally invasive. It's, it's not laparoscopy, but it can be done through a single mini lap incision below the belly button as the fundus of the uterus at that time is still pretty high. All right, so, but today we're here to focus on some surgical steps, Nick. So let's kind of start the process about talking about how to discuss postpartum sterilization surgeries with our patients. 
Totally. And I think always, you know, with surgical steps, seeing pictures is really, really helpful. Um, so for pictures, you know, we still like the Atlas of Pelvic Surgery, um, their website, though admittedly it is kind of outdated. Um, for instance, if you go to their tubal sterilization page, you'll see things like the Irving technique. Um, if you really want to throw back kind of interesting look at yeah. some forms of sterilization. Um, but they do have two nice pages that, again, that we'll link to on the website. One that's kind of general of sterilization surgery, and then the second specifically for the Pomeroy technique. Um, but we'll talk, I'll talk first phase specifically about the preoperative phase. So, mm -hmm. you know, we always start off with consent. Um, and during a consent process, as we've reviewed on the informed consent episode before, you want to review the way the procedure is done and discuss the different methods that you can provide. And we'll go over those again in a second. We'll then discuss sort of risks, benefits, and alternatives. And that's always a good way to think about framing a consent. So for this, you already stated the benefits, Faye, you know, usually a quick recovery um, and permanent sterilization if that's desired. Okay. Um, the risks of permanent sterilization procedures, as with all surgeries, I think, are risks of bleeding, infection, injury to organs around the uterus and fallopian tubes. Um, risk of regrets is a minor, minor thing, but also important to mention to folks. Um, and then finally, another big risk that we often neglect to tell people that is important to say is that we may not be able to perform the surgery that they want immediately after delivery. And be there's a few major reasons for why that might be. You no, know, some could be significant anemia after somebody delivers um, that makes it inadvisable to do elective surgery like this. Another could be infection like chorioendometritis, um, inability to palpate the fundus after delivery that can, of course, be particularly an issue for patients with increased central adiposity. And then finally, it might be possible that we can enter the abdomen, but then we can't perform the surgery because we can't find the tubes, usually because they're adhered somewhere because of prior surgeries, PID, cysts that ruptured and healed and scarred, basically. Um, and so when you go through those and sort of those risks, particularly of the risks of not being able to perform the procedure, that brings us nicely into sort of the alternatives, um, specifically that no, you may not be able to perform a sterilization procedure, so using a different form of birth control until six weeks postpartum, until you can get to the point of doing a laparoscopic procedure, or just using a LARC procedure instead of permanent sterilization. The last thing that we should make mention of in this sterilization part of the podcast um, is that for patients with public, state, Medicaid type of insurance, there is that MA31 federal consent form that needs to be signed 30 days in advance um, or completed at least 72 hours in advance of an emergent or preterm delivery. All right, so I think that's enough about the consent side, Faye. While we're still thinking about preoperative things though, what else do we need to include in our workup or our checklist? Yeah. So of course, anytime you see your patient before surgery, you should do a history and a physical. You're probably already going to be asking about these types of things because you're seeing the patient in the prenatal uh, setting. But specifically, you should ask patients about history of abdominal surgeries and pelvic infections like gonorrhea, chlamydia, or PID, as you mentioned, Nick, because it would make it more difficult to get into an abdomen if they have significant adhesions. And then it's not a strict contraindication for surgery if they've had any of these things, but certainly it should go into your counseling about the patient about the procedure for the patient in the event that you are not able to perform the procedure that they want. In terms of the physical exam, 
specifically on the day that you're actually going to be doing the procedure, so the morning right before, it's wise to go in and palpate the fundus yourself to make sure that you're actually able to feel it so that when you take the patient back to the operating room that you feel like you can actually get to the fundus of the uterus and the tubes. Um, And then you can decide at that time if you can proceed or not. Usually there's no other additional workup beyond prenatal care and delivery, um, but sometimes if there is significant blood loss at the time of deliveries, uh, the provider may want to get a CBC to just check in to see what that hemoglobin is. And usually uh, for any type of surgery, depending on your hospital, they'll want a type and screen that's active on file. But again, most of the time the patients are coming in for delivery that will already be in their file. The kind of last couple of things that, you know, we think are important is to talk to the patients about anesthesia and the expectations after the procedure. So most of these procedures can be done with neuraxal anesthesia, um, and sometimes the patients can even keep their epidurals that they're using from their labor and birth if it's good enough for that. But some patients may not want another epidural or a spinal anesthesia replaced if it's the second day, for example, after their delivery, and so it's important to let them know. And then in terms of the expectations, most patients will not need to stay longer than they would for their actual delivery, though a few may need a small amount of narcotic medication for incisional pain, but usually I don't prescribe more than like five tabs of five milligram oxycodone and only if it's needed because it is a pretty minor surgery overall. All right, Nick, so we've talked a lot of things about before the surgery, so let's actually talk about during the surgery. What are we doing? Sure. So Kind of preparation is key, certainly. Um, and if we dictate this kind of like we would for an operative report, um, of course, you're going to obtain adequate anesthesia, you're going to prep and drape the patient, and then you're going to get the patient positioned. Generally speaking, patients will be in a dorsal supine position, um, though this isn't going to be the only position that your patient ends up in during the surgery. It's often helpful to ask the anesthesiologist to quote unquote airplane the patient. Um, Um, or tilts the table to the left or to the right in order for the uterus to fall one way or the other and bring the fimbria of the fallopian tube into view. Um, This also helps kind of let the bowel fall away and kind of do some other things where you're taking advantage of gravity to help you out with the procedure. And then the beginning sort of portion of the surgery, you know, after you prep the abdomen, Generally speaking, we'll mark approximately three to four centimeters on the inferior edge of the umbilicus um, for your incision point. And then some people might inject lidocaine at this point, but sometimes that distorts the anatomy. So uh, many times folks may wait until the end to do that kind of a practice variation, if you will. You'll then incise along your incisional edge and continue downward dissection until you find fascia. Um, It's often helpful to use some shallow retractors, something like an Army Navy retractor um, or skin retractors to basically hold back the skin as you're getting down there. Again, this tends to be an area where the skin is pretty thin going down to the fascia because you're right there near the umbilicus. Um, So you shouldn't have to do a ton of deep dissection. You'll then pick up the fascia um, with appropriate instruments. Um, You know, you can use Kelly's, you can use an Alice, you can use a Coker, um, something like that, and make a small incision then with Metzenbaum scissors. And then you want to also, to the best of your ability, make sure no bowel is adhered to the fascia there. Um, So often you're making sort of small incisions, kind of going bit by bit until you can totally be clear and identify that peritoneum. 
You'll incise the fascia, kind of put a finger in place to extend it a little bit further, place a coker on either end of the fascia. Here, honestly, I think it's helpful to throw a stitch on one end or the other of the fascia with an ovicral, um, and then hold those off to the side with a hemostat. This allows you to find the fascia later without having to dig for it underneath one of those corners, um, because these incisions do tend to be pretty small. Retract those fascia again using Army Navies, or some people use like a small Alexis, um, which is a brand name for like an O retractor that kind of goes in and is a disposable retractor. Um, then you can basically bluntly get into the peritoneum and then use your finger to essentially feel inside. And hopefully then you're feeling the fundus of the uterus and can kind of move your way towards the cornea and the tube. And you can use those retractors like the army navies to basically kind of move that incision around until you get right over that cornea. Again, remember to airplane your patient to the right or to the left to be able to kind of help out with getting the tube tilted upwards towards you. And then once you find a tube, you're going to use a Babcock atraumatic clamp to basically be able to hold the tube up and follow it all the way out to the fimbriae. One critically important thing here is that you want to make sure whatever you grab with that Babcock is a tube indeed, and not something like the round ligament, which can look pretty similar if you're just finding a little segment of it through that small incision. Okay, so Faye, those are pretty generally the surgical steps that are going to be common to all of these variations we're going to talk about today. Um, but let's get into the variation now. Yeah, sure. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the salpingectomy, which I think is becoming more and more popular because of that decreased risk of ovarian cancer risk. So with the salpingectomy, if you have some kind of device that allows you to clamp, seal, and cut, something like a ligature, for example, then what you can do is use that ligature to basically clamp and then seal and cut al along the tube just underneath it along the mesosalpings. And you want to really make sure to hug that tube as much as you can. Um, and you basically are going to clamp, seal, and cut where the tube meets the cornua to then remove the tube. And then finally, you're going to inspect that area of sealing and cutting to ensure that there's no bleeding and allow the tube to fall back into the abdomen and then proceed with the next tube. Um, unfortunately, there are some places that you don't have access to a ligature or it's pretty expensive to be using on someone who's having a postpartum um, uh, salpingectomy, kind of like where we trained, Nick. I feel like people do not want to mm -hmm. open those ligatures for these types of procedures. Um, in that case, you can use something like a long Kelly clamp to clamp along the mesosalpinks below the tube. Um, it's just going to take you a little bit more time, but basically you're going to cut above that Kelly clamp until the end of the clamp is reached. Use something like a 3-0 synthetic absorbable suture. You take a bite with the needle just beneath the level of clamp and tie this portion down. And then you essentially do this as many times as you need to as you're marching along underneath that tube until the cornea is reached. And then similarly, use that Kelly clamp, clamp off the tube, uh, cut off the tube, and again, use that 3-0 synthetic absorbable suture to ligate the end of the tube. And then remember, at the end, you definitely want to send that tube to pathology for confirmation that you've gotten the whole tube, or at least that you see a cross-section. All right, so that's going to be the salpingectomy, Nick. What about the Pomeroy? Um, and interestingly, I feel like this is now falling out of favor, and some of my residents don't actually know what a Pomeroy or a Parkland is. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing how practice changes, Faye, because definitely when we were coming up and learning these as interns and second years doing our first cesarean deliveries or our first tubules, um, the Pomeroy certainly was the mainstay or the modified Pomeroy, I should say. Um, but just to describe the procedure, so if you're not able to take the tube out um, or the 
choice is to do a Pomeroy, what you're going to do is place a Babcock into the middle of the tube, that mid-ismic section. So that way you basically have a small one to two centimeter portion of the tube that's elevated. Under that Babcock clamp at the base of that elevated section, you're going to tie a 3.0 synthetic absorbable suture, usually a plain gut suture. Um, and the modified Pomeroy is basically giving yourself some extra insurance by tying two of those around the base. Then you're going to hold that up with a hemostat and excise the knuckle of the tube kind of above the level of where you tied. So you're cutting out that one to two centimeter portion that's now knuckled off. Um, and you want to make sure again that you've cut out a full tubal segment. So you'll send it off for pathologic confirmation. Um, not a frozen, of course, you'll do permanent and that'll be something that you find out later on. Um, but you want to make sure that you get that whole whole. Um, thickness of the tube. Um, you can use the hemostat attached to your suture to keep the tube out of the abdomen and inspect the area that you've incised for any area of bleeding. Um, and then of course you can use electrocautery or crush to be able to control any small areas of bleeding at the, at the incision area. Once the area is considered dry, you can take the hemostat off and cut that long part of the stitch and let the tube drop back into the abdomen. Bye-bye and hopefully maintain hemostasis there. Yep. <laughs> That's always the scary part about that. Um, yes. But these work really, really well, admittedly. Now, a kind of similar but modified technique is the Parklands technique. Yeah, so the Parkland technique is going to be very similar to the Pomeroy, where first what you're going to do is identify that mid-ismic portion of your tube and place that Babcock clamp in that area. So again, that small one to two centimeter portion of tube is elevated and it's knuckled off. The main difference is that instead of just tying your suture down now, you're actually going to identify a small avascular portion of the mesosalpinx that's underneath your Babcock. And then you're going to actually use your Metzenbaum scissors to essentially push through and incise a small area so that you essentially have a little hole underneath where your Babcock is on the tube. And then very carefully so that you're not ripping more of the mesosalpinx, you're going to pass two ligatures of the 3.0 synthetic absorbable suture, like a plain gut, for example, through the area that was incised and then tie down on either side of the tube. Um, for a modified Pomeroy, again, you can tie down two of these on either side to give yourself that extra insurance. And you're going to hold, again, one end with a hemostat so that you can later inspect the area. You're then going to use your scissors to incise that knuckle of tube above the, your ligatures, either one or two on each side, and send that to pathology. Inspect your incised portions to ensure no bleeding. And then allow that tube to fall back into the abdomen and, you know, go on to your other side. Once you've completed both sides and you've achieved hemostasis, you know, closing uh, is going to be similar for all three of these. Essentially, you're going to close the fascia with ovicrol or some similar type of suture. And this is where I think, Nick, what you said when you hold that fascia with the suture is very yep. helpful because you've already got your suture there. You can just go ahead and, uh, you know, stitch the fascia closed. Um, then you can close the skin with something like forobiosin or monocryl. And then at this time, if you want to, you can inject lidocaine if uh, if you want to do that. And then finally, you would put a small pressure dressing in the area. All right, so you are all done with your postpartum tubal ligation or postpartum salpingectomy. Um, what should you tell the patient to expect postoperatively? Yeah, so in the immediate postpartum period, you know that first thing is that the spinal epidural should basically wear off before they go back to the um, ambulatory postpartum unit, if you will. Um, the patient could breastfeed immediately if desired. Again, usually they use some 
quick acting narcotic or anxiolytic at most as an adjunct to the spinal. Um, so these are usually out of the system pretty quick and breastfeeding is safe immediately. Routine postpartum care in the hospital is otherwise pretty much it. And as Faye mentioned, sometimes need a small amount of narcotic afterwards as needed um, to be able to control for just the incisional pain. The dressing usually comes off in 24 hours after that. And then for follow-up, honestly, you just go for routine postpartum follow-up. Definitely check your path report. Make sure that you have complete tubal segments if you did the partial salpingectomy techniques, the park under the Pomeroy. Um, and then otherwise, kind of your patient goes on their merry way. There's not much extra to this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. I don't know if we necessarily need to summarize since we kind of went through some surgical steps, uh, but hopefully this has been helpful for you all in terms of learning about postpartum sterilization. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CraigsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CraigsOverCoffee, and if you want to donate to the show, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CraigsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CraigsOverCoffee.com. And if you have an idea for an episode, have a correction, or just want to reach out to us, go ahead and email us, creogsrivercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>